And we're live. It's Car Con Carne, sponsored by Siren Records McHenry. They're now offering curbside pickup and online ordering. You can check out their new website at sirenrecordsmchenry.com. If you're in a band or own a label and want to get your product in an actual store, message them on social media or call the store. Siren, Siren Records McHenry is always looking to support local music. It's Car Con Carne. It is Carcon Carne in quarantine. Quarantine Con Carne. Joining me uh, via the internet is old friend Christian Picciolini. Hello, Christian. Hey, James. How are you, man? It's good to see you again. I'm good. And for context, former white supremacist, leader of the movement, reformed for many years, your mission is to bring people out of it. Break this, break, breaking hate is your yeah, mission. And that's the name of the new book. Breaking Hate, Confronting the New Culture of Extremism. I'm going to read a quote from the book that just hit me hard as I'm looking around at the world today. Extremism, regardless of whether it's motivated by a political, religious, or social doctrine, flourishes when a critical mass of people believe their lives are becoming meaningless, displaced, or disempowered. Seems like as we're sheltering at home and people are feeling more and more disempowered, we're at a point where extremism can really grow deeper roots. Is that far off? No, I mean, I think that we are at the perfect storm, kind of the apex of everything right now in terms of, you know, we're all quarantined. We are all, you know, there are a lot of people out of jobs right now. There's a lot of misinformation floating around. We're all, you know, in front of our computers every day with access to, to, you know, propaganda and fake news and things like that. And, you know, we're uncertain. I think more than anything else, uncertainty is, is what leads people to these out of the box ideas like extremism. And I think we are at the point right now where it's, it's a, kind of a perfect storm for things to happen. I, I think people really want to point to one thing. What, what makes people flip and, and choose this attitude, this, this lifestyle, this, this hate? And you really distilled it, I thought, very well in this book. ICP, as you explain in the book, not to be confused with Insane Clown Posse, which I appreciated, a little brevity uh, in the book, Identity, Community, Purpose. Explain. Yeah, those are three pillars that every single person on earth builds their values on. Uh, we all search for those things at some point in our lives, typically when we're younger. Uh, and when we're searching for identity, community, and purpose, um, if we hit what I call you know, potholes, metaphorical potholes in our life's journey, they can detour us. And potholes can be anything like trauma, mental illness, uh, joblessness, poverty, uh, even privilege. Privilege is a big pothole. If it keeps us you know, so separate from society, you know, it can, it can detour us to the fringes. And on the fringes, there are, you know, a lot of these really toxic narratives like political extremism, ideological extremism, but even things like drug abuse and suicide and school shooters and people who are really looking to kind of put on a suit of armor to protect themselves from the pain that they felt and are now blaming somebody else for causing that pain. Somebody's given them the narrative of saying, it's not your fault, it's their fault. And it creates this us against them narrative. Your approach, I think, is an approach that a lot of people would have a hard time taking. Empathy. The thing that truly works, as you describe it, receiving unexpected and often unwarranted compassion from someone we might not otherwise show it to ourselves. It's got to be, 
as long as you've been doing this, it still has to be hard to show empathy for someone who maybe commits a violent act upon another person or intimidates, bullies, in some way harms another person. It's got to be hard to kind of turn off that switch and embrace that person. Yeah, man, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. And, and it's, it is hard for anybody to do, to be kind, to be kind to the bad guy, you know, to see the child and not the monster. But that's something that I talk about in my book is we have to have the ability to see the child and not the monster, whether that child is 16 or 60, um, that most of the things that lead people to these behaviors are, are not that they're born a Nazi or a racist, is that they've, they've learned it as kind of a, a defensive measure. Now, that doesn't mean it's anybody else's fault, right, that they've learned that. And I'm also not saying that these people shouldn't be held accountable. Empathy does not mean not holding people accountable because I hold everybody accountable that I work with. It is on them to, make, to repair the damage that they've caused. That's I think you still, hold, you, you still hold yourself accountable. Yeah, I've been doing that for, you know, the last 24 years since I denounced the movement and left. Uh, it's been very important for me to go out there and, and fix the damage that I've caused. And I, you know, part of that I do by helping people disengage. Part of that I do by dismantling what I helped build. Um, and, you know, just speaking the truth about what's going on. Because there aren't a whole lot of people that have seen the inside of that and, and, and walked out. And you, you mentioned underneath the exterior is a fractured human, the yeah. personal trauma. And being able to identify that. Yeah, and I think we're all broken, man. I think we are all fractured to some degree, you know, and that's okay. Um, you know, there's anybody watching this right now, there's something that they're dealing with that nobody else in the world knows about, that most people don't know about. If we can understand that, that we're all just broken, that, you know, there's this universality of brokenness that we all share, that's the key to telling us that we need each other, that we can't get through this alone or to by isolating ourselves or excluding anybody else. We're all sharing this kind of fundamental brokenness to some degree. And, and we really frankly need each other to get through it. What people who are listening or watching right now didn't experience right before we started recording, my 18 year old came in the room because he read your first book and it really lit him up. He, he learned a lot. He, he got a lot out of it and he's still talking about it. It seems like, that's a good age to start doing this kind of outreach, high school age. Yeah, I think even earlier than that. I mean, really, the, the magic age for, for somebody to start really developing their sense of identity, community, and purpose is around 12, 13, 14 years old. That, you know, 14 years old was the age I was recruited in 1987 on the southwest side of Chicago in a dead-end alley at the, you know, very ironic corner of Union and Division Streets. Uh, and... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I didn't even know that until a couple of years ago when somebody took me there for an interview and I was standing on the corner. I looked up at the street signs and they were literally crossing and said union and division. How ironic is that? Um, and yeah, I mean, it, we need to start having these conversations earlier. Frankly, if we're not having this conversation until somebody's 16 or 18 years old, we've really missed the development stage uh, to where, you know, they, they can learn how to be vulnerable to talk about some of the issues that they're going through. And frankly, as parents, as adults, we need to learn to be cautiously vulnerable with our young people, because if we don't share with them what's broken, what's insecure about ourselves, they'll never learn to do that with us. And they'll always kind of go through trying to figure out this identity, community, purpose, and, a, and kind of a, you know, with their blinders on. I've been watching you over the past couple of years. We haven't spoke for a couple of years, and I do miss you, Christian. Um, I miss you too, man. But I've been watching all the work you've been doing, and I've been aware of it. And then when I read the new book, when, as I'm going through Breaking Hate, you tell the story of Cassandra. Or is it Cassandra? Cassandra. Cassandra. 
the lengths that you go to to help pull these people out of these extremist groups her story in particular it read like a hollywood drama but it was real i mean you are no bullshit putting yourself in harm's way for these people yeah i mean i never know where it's going to lead when somebody reaches out to me for help but uh cassandra was a 16 year old girl whose parents reached out to me in 2016 early 2016 and were horrified when they learned that she was on YouTube making these kind of, you know, white nationalist propaganda recruitment videos. And then when they learned that she had been recruited by kind of an online boyfriend who was older, you know, was this kind of 20 something uh, blonde haired, blue eyed, you know, Aryan boy from, from Idaho, uh, you know, they were horrified because she was underage at the time too. So they called me and they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to talk to her. And the first thing I, I do is I always do a little bit of a, you know, background search, just, you know, open source stuff on what I could find out about people to see how they've been radicalized and what communities they're in. And uh, within a couple of months, I discovered that this guy, uh, this boyfriend that she had, whom she'd never met, uh, had never seen over video, had spoken to on the phone. He'd sent her videos, had sent her photos, um, but she had never met him face to face. Um, I had discovered uh, that he was not this, you know, 23-year-old German-American boy living in Idaho. He was actually uh, two people, at least. Um, one was a Peruvian 30-year-old living in Northern California, and another one was uh, also a 30-year-old Russian guy living in Moscow who had ties to foreign intelligence. So, you know, eventually that, that story kind of went off the rails because she didn't believe me when I presented the family with this information. Uh, and, uh, you know, eventually she was abducted because of that. And as you get into these people's lives and these stories, the more you peel back, I mean, you don't know where, where this will end up. You yeah. don't know how, how entrenched these people are, the groups that they're, I mean, I find this terrifying and I realize this is, this is your mission, but I, I'm reading this stuff and all I can think is, oh dear God, Christian, please, please be safe and smart. And I know you are, but this is harrowing stuff to read. Yeah. And I mean, I try my best to, to be as careful as possible, you know, and Cassandra's situation was interesting because even though she was abducted, I was able to find her and get her back uh, and get her to her parents. Uh, but in those days, and we're talking just two or three years ago, law enforcement wasn't all that interested in hearing about white supremacy. They weren't interested in hearing about, you know, Russian connections. Uh, and I think, you know, looking back now, I actually may have been one of the first people in this country to give the information that Russia had somehow infiltrated like alt-right online trolls and, and was influencing the election. And I actually turned that over before the election of 2016 to the Hillary Clinton campaign and to the FBI. Uh, and, uh, you know, I got, I got feedback that they had received it, but I never got any follow-up on that. So, I mean, this was not something anybody was interested in talking about back then. Well, I remember when we first started interviewing for your, your first book, you said quite plainly, International terrorism isn't the threat. The next big threat is coming from right here in our borders. It is domestic homegrown terrorism. And here we are. Yeah. And, and we're seeing yeah. it. And you yeah, were, the connection. You're banging that drum. Yeah, I was banging that drum. And I mean, it, it does have connections to international terrorism. It is transnational. Uh, but, you know, the, the reality is, is we have domestic terrorists within our borders. And, and many of them are Americans. Uh, who want to eliminate other Americans. And I've been really trying to bang that drum for at least, you know, 15 years 
because you know the way we're seeing it go now is it is not people with brown skin from other countries who are coming to terrorize us it is people that are already here one thing that i thought was really interesting that i, I guess i hadn't given much thought to is how racism has involved has evolved it's not about being outright blatant with racism it's it, the goal is to, for these groups to become more invisible and blend in with society. One example in particular, it's no longer saying Zionist and Jew, it's globalist and global elite. And it was kind of eye-opening. It's a lot more subtle and insidious in a way because the goal is to just blend in. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of a you know strategy in the 80s and 90s um, when I was involved in the movement because we were getting a lot of heat from law enforcement. You know, in the late 80s and early 90s, law enforcement was taking down some of these organizations they were infiltrating and it was easy. So, you know, we started telling people, don't shave your heads, don't get tattoos, don't wear boots, don't even join the Klan or wave a flag, you know, come to the meetings, but then go out into your neighborhoods, into your communities, into your jobs and recruit people. And it was easier to recruit the average American white racist by using regular language than it was by waving swastikas because there was still, you know, it was still fresh from, you know, World War II and things like that. So it started to become very undercover. You know, the language changed, the look changed, and people started to take jobs and, you know, and, you know, in law enforcement and schools as teachers and things like that. Uh, and, you know, part of that was strategic. Nowadays, it's, it's not a strategy anymore to put people in those positions. They're just there. And those are the people that are being recruited. But in the 80s and 90s, it was a strategy to kind of drop the look and, and to go mainstream to, to spread the message further. One of the things I found most distressing over the past few years is this movement to paint the media as untrue or something you shouldn't trust or just every attack on the free press imaginable. You mentioned the Lugan press in your book, a, a way to describe the media as the lying press. And this is, this is, it sure isn't coincidental, is it? No, it's not coincidental. Yeah, no, Lugan Press was a term that was used by the Third Reich to to talk about what they claimed was a Jewish or a liberal media that was, you know, putting out lies, fake news, essentially. Uh, Lugan Press was also a term that Richard Spencer used, uh, you know, after uh, Trump was elected um, and he had his kind of a separate inauguration party where, where Spencer was caught saying, hail Trump, hail victory, hail our people, but was also caught talking about the Lugan press using those terms. Now, it's no surprise that now, you know, we have uh, the extreme right talking about fake media, fake news, the mainstream media and how they lie and, and you know, how it's, it's all painted against conservatives. Any authoritarian, any dictator, their first job is to get rid of the free press, the media, because those are the ones who are kind of untethered and, un and can talk about things, uh, you know, in, that are true, can talk about uncomfortable things, can do investigations. And, you know, frankly, the press today is, is really kind of the biggest enemy for the Trump administration because they're the ones really trying to uncover the truth as he's bearing. You broke out of your circle. You, you, you evolved out of hate group a long time ago. You had a kid and your eyes opened and here you are today. I'm sure you've given this thought before, can you imagine what would have happened to you, with you, had you stayed on that track? I most certainly would have been dead or in jail by now. I mean, it would have been 30 years that I would have been in. Um, 
No, I, I mean, I can't imagine that. I mean, I've spent the last, you know, 20 plus years trying to not erase what I've done, uh, but trying to repair it. Um, so no, I, I can't really imagine what it would be like now. Uh, technology is, had that tech, had the technology that's around today been around then when we were trying to make music and, and all those things, I mean, I can't imagine, um, what it must be like now for propagandists when they really, you know, 20, the internet's become kind of like that digital alleyway that I was recruited in. It's a 24 hour, all you can eat hate buffet if you want it to. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, it's almost like you cannot step into fake news or propaganda. Um, even if you're not looking for it, it's really hard. There are a lot of people I'm sure listening to the podcast after the fact, there are a lot of people watching. There's Christy and Sam and Molly Jean and Dan and Dan and Eric and Tony and Mike, Chris, Joe, Mark, Natalie, Giorgio, a lot of people watching. As they're hearing you talk about this, as we're talking about your book, what do you want them to know about how to move forward and identify this stuff, address this stuff? How do we as citizens do better? You know, there's two things that white supremacists love, and that is uh, violence, right? So they want, they come to these rallies, they have these rallies because they want to attract violence. Um, and they want people to be vocal because they want it to seem like rights are being taken away from them. And there are a couple of things that we can do. We can be vigilant and we can be visible and we can be vocal in ways um, to try and identify vulnerable people before they go down that path. We can prevent this. I have hope. You know, despite all the, the shit that I talk about that, you know, is terrible in my book, uh, you know, I have hope. I know that there are good people. I know that it is the minority of people that right now are the loudest. Uh, and they're making a lot of noise, but we have to be very, very careful because that it is very contagious. Fear is contagious. And hatred is born of ignorance. Fear is its father. Isolation is its mother. So we can't, you know, even though we're isolated right now, we have to stay connected and we cannot be afraid even though, you know, we're faced with all this uncertainty right now. We have to just stay connected uh, and, you know, try to prevent people from going down this path because it, it, it's something that's learned. And I think that if we can intervene early with young people, especially, uh, we can prevent them from going down that path. Looking ahead, uh, is there more stuff coming up for TV or on TV for you? Yeah, I'm happy to announce. I don't even know if I'm supposed to announce it or not, but I've got a, a podcast series coming out with WBEZ sometime in September-ish. Awesome. It'll be like a narrative, uh, you know, multi-episode uh, podcast kind of exploring some of this stuff. I am currently working on developing a, um, a docu-series about conspiracy theories and debunking them. Uh, I'm really excited about that. Um, but I got to tell, I got to share a story with you, James, before we go, I got to tell you, and I, and I think I've told you this before, but you may not remember it. 1996, after I left the movement, I sent a demo tape to the local music showcase at Q101, right? It was 1990, late, mid or late 1996. And it was from this stupid little punk rock band called Random 55 that I was in, that I played guitar for. And JVO played one of our tracks on the radio, on Q101. And I have to off tell cassette. you. Off cassette. Off cassette. Yeah, it was a cassette tape. I still have one. And, uh, I got to tell you, that kind of helped change my life, man. I was, it was a really kind of treacherous period of my life, 96, right after I left. I was searching for something, man. And you, that little thing, that unknown track that you played from that little punk rock band that allowed me to tell, you know, five or six or eight people that I knew really went a long way. And I just wanted to say thank you for that. 
That, that's wonderful to hear. And it's proof. Music really does solve everything. Yeah, I'm a fan. I, I totally am a fan. So you have my books and I have, I have your books too. Oh my and I even Lord. came prepared. We don't have a car and we don't have carne. So I, you know, we're going to do a little bit of, of Corona and yeah. spam today. <laughs> desperate times, man. Yeah, desperate times. Yeah. We got to hunker down. But it, I, that, I love hearing that story. Not for no other reason than you found a way out. And it, at the end of the day, it wasn't me. It was music. Music, the music would have found its way, if not through my radio station, through another radio station. Music is so important. It really is. You yeah. talk about community and staying together. Nothing better than music for that. It's the truest form of empathy, music and art, because you are literally putting yourself into somebody else's shoes to feel what they were feeling. So we need more of it. Love it. All right. So the new book is Breaking Hate, Confronting the New Culture of Extremism. Uh, the work you're doing is, there, there it is. There it is. The work you're doing is incredible. Uh, keep it up. A, a grateful nation thanks you for the work Thanks, that you're doing. Well, I'm grateful too. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to stop the Facebook Live. Thank you, everybody, for watching the, the video. We definitely appreciate that. And Christian, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks, James, man. I always appreciate it. Anytime you ever want to talk, I'm always here.